Exodus chapter 34, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you... Uh, are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall Worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed." Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let us go now to the New Testament, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul writing to the church in Rome. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who were not My people I will call My people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it said to them, You are not My people, There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. There is a lot of repetition found in the book of Exodus in chapters 34 through 39. Next Sunday, Lord willing, I will tell you about the repetition that is found in Exodus 35 through 39. Regarding the building of the tabernacle according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain, today our focus is on chapter 34. And chapter 34 is filled with repetition. Here the covenant that the Lord entered into with Israel is renewed. In fact, a better word would probably be reinstated. The covenant was so badly broken when Israel forgot the Lord and ran full speed into idolatry and the worshiping of that golden calf that Aaron had made. It was not restoration that was needed, but a reinstatement of the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai. The covenant was broken, and this was signified by the breaking of the stone tablets which contained the Ten Commandments. Moses came down the mountain, found the people in idolatry through the tablets, and they were broken. And there, the breaking of that old Mosaic covenant was signified. Here we see that the covenant is reinstated. And that is indeed signified by the making of new tablets. So as I have said, there is a great deal of repetition here as key elements from earlier in Exodus, from the original making of the Old Mosaic Covenant, are stated yet again. Did you, did you catch that as I read the text to you? Uh, you should have thought to yourself, it feels as if I've heard all of this before. It's because you have. Uh, key elements from the making of the Old Mosaic Covenant the first time that it was made are here in Exodus chapter 34, Restated, They're picked up again. And the repetition is very crucial. It makes very clear that this is not a new 
or different covenant that is being made, but a gracious restatement of the one that had just been made, which Israel had broken through their corporate idolatry. Here also in this reinstatement of the covenant, we see the mercy and grace of God put on display. And really, I think this is the main point of it all. God was merciful to Israel. He showed them grace, though they deserved to be cast off entirely because they had almost immediately broken the covenant of works that God had made with them. He showed them grace. His mercy and grace is here in this text put on display. I suppose the repetition in this passage might tempt some to tune out. I think that would be a very great mistake, brothers and sisters. There's so very much for us to learn from this text, and there's much application to be made. For the sake of clarity, I will present this text to you under three headings. One, the covenant reinstated. Two, the name of the Lord further revealed. And three, the leadership of Moses reestablished. So first let us consider that the Lord graciously reinstated the covenant he had previously made with Israel through Moses at Sinai after the people had quickly obliterated it through their corporate idolatry. That the Lord graciously reinstated the very same covenant that he had not long before made with Israel is made abundantly clear in verse 1 of Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So we can see clearly that this is not a different covenant being made, not a new one, but a replica of the first, an exact replica of the first. It is a reinstatement of the covenant that Israel had just broke. In this text, we learn that Moses was invited to come back up to the mountain into the presence of God. He was there again for 40 days and 40 nights. Here we are told that he neither ate ate nor drank. The Lord sustained him there. And while there, the Lord wrote on these tablets of stone with his own finger the very same words that were written upon the first set which Moses threw to the ground and broke when he found the people in idolatry. So what exactly was written on these stone tablets? What exactly was written on these stone tablets? Verse 28 of Exodus 34 is very clear that it was the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words Uh, The very same commandments that are recorded for us in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 17. These ten moral laws written on these stone tablets stood for the whole of the covenant that God had made with Israel as Sinai. As you know, other laws were added to these. The old Mosaic covenant contained civil laws and ceremonial laws in addition to the moral law of the Ten Commandments. We call these civil and ceremonial laws positive laws, for they were added to the moral law, and they were uniquely binding on Old Covenant Israel. But these civil and ceremonial laws, notice, were not written on the stone tablets, only the Ten Commandments were. And therefore, these tablets and the Ten Commandments that were written upon them stood, represented, the whole of the covenant that the Lord entered into with Israel at Sinai. I think it is a very important observation to make that it was the Ten Commandments and not the civil and ceremonial laws of the old Mosaic covenant that were written on stone. 
it will help us to answer the question, which law has been written upon the hearts of the new covenant people of God in fulfillment to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31? I trust that you're familiar with that text. When Jeremiah, the old covenant prophet, speaks of the coming new covenant, he says that the Lord is going to write His law upon the heart of man. And so there is a contrast made between the old and the new. What was written by the hand of God upon stone at Sinai is written upon the heart of man uh, by the the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant. It's a very important observation to make. One question we should ask concerning the stone tablets is this. Why two tablets and not one? Have you ever wondered that? Why two tablets and not one? Were two tablets needed so that the Lord would have enough space to write the words which we have recorded for us in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 17? I think not. The Ten Commandments do not take up more than half a page in my English translation of the Bible. Space was not the issue. Or was it so that the Ten Commandments could be divided into two sections? The first tablet containing Commandments 1 through 4 which pertain to the proper worship of God, and the second tablet containing commandments 5 through 10, which pertain to the proper treatment of our fellow man. I suppose that is possible. After all, we do see the Scriptures themselves recognize this division. Christ Himself summarized the whole law according to this division when He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I suppose it is possible that the two tablets functioned in this way to contain what we call the two tables of God's moral law. The first table concerned with the worship of God. The second table concerned with our relationship with fellow man. Um, But I do not think that is the reason for the two tablets either. Instead, it is my view that both tablets had all ten commandments written on them. In other words, these two tablets were identical copies of one another. One tablet was Israel's copy of the covenant law, and the other tablet was Yahweh's copy. Indeed, in those days, this is how kings would enter into covenants or treaties with each other. When a great king entered into a covenant with a lesser king, the great king would establish the terms of the covenant. These terms would be agreed to before witnesses. The terms would be written down and each party would receive a copy of the covenant law or of the terms of the covenant that had just just been made. In this way, the terms of the relationship would be clearly communicated and ratified through a formal covenant. And that is what is happening here, brothers and sisters. Yahweh... The King of kings and Lord of lords is graciously entering into a covenant with Israel. The Ten Commandments written on stone by God's law, uh, by God rather, summarize the terms of it. One tablet is Israel's copy and the other is the Lord's. And both were to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the tabernacle where the Lord would meet with His people Israel. So where the high priest would enter once a year into the most holy place, there the law of the covenant would be found. There the terms of Israel's relationship with the Lord would be set forth. So then, it is clear that Yahweh is here reinstating the same covenant that He made with Israel earlier, 
which they had broken through their corporate idolatry. And this fact becomes even more clear when we see that in this text, many other laws were restated too. It is not only that the Lord gave Moses and through him Israel, a a brand new fresh copy of the Ten Commandments written on stone, Uh, other laws are here reinstated uh, so that we might see that the whole of the covenant that God made with Israel previously, which they had broken, is being reinstated now. We know that God added civil laws and ceremonial laws. We are told about the giving of these civil and ceremonial laws in Exodus 21 through 31, a very large portion of Scripture which we move through very slowly. These additional positive laws were not written by the finger of God on the stone tablets, but they were written down by Moses. This book or scroll that Moses wrote was a record of all the laws which the Lord revealed to him for Israel. In Exodus 24.7, this book is called the Book of the Covenant. In Deuteronomy 29.21, it is called the Book of the Law. And in that Deuteronomy text, we are told that this book of the law, once it was completed, was to be put by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so the Ten Commandments were written on stone, but all of the laws which God revealed to Israel through Moses were written in this book of the law or this book of the covenant, and they were put beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord once completed. Here is the thing that we must notice. When the Lord reinstated the Old Covenant after Israel's idolatry, He did not only provide them with a new set of stone tablets containing the moral law, He also restated some of the positive laws too. And this was to make clear that everything that was said before was still in force. Yes, Israel had obliterated the covenant through their corporate idolatry, but here that covenant is being reinstated. And the mention that is made of all of these other laws, or at least the sampling of laws, makes it clear that everything that had been said before is still in force. I will not take the time to show you in detail um, all of the connections that are present here. It would be too tedious to accomplish in this time we have remaining. I think it will be sufficient for me to say that according to this text, Israel was still to observe the feasts of the Lord that were commanded earlier. They were to worship as God had prescribed earlier. You will notice in this text that a very strong emphasis is placed on laws governing worship And a very strong warning is given here concerning the threat of idolatry. This makes perfect sense given what Israel had just done. What laws did the Lord reinstate? Which ones did He choose to emphasize here as this covenant is reinstituted? He especially emphasizes laws that forbid idolatry. Be careful of idolatry is what the Lord said to Israel through Moses. This also makes sense given what Israel was about to do. Namely, construct the tabernacle according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. What was that tabernacle for except worship? And so here the Lord shows mercy and grace to Israel. He promises to go with them and to dwell in the midst of them still. He reinstates His covenant laws to them, laws on stone and other laws too. And Israel is about to build the tabernacle according to the design shown to Moses on the mountain The Lord especially warns Israel, beware of idolatry. Do not be sucked into the idolatrous practices of the nations that are around you. Beware of idolatry. So here in Exodus 34, the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai is restored or reinstated. 
This covenant was a covenant of works. This meant that its blessings had to be earned by the people through their obedience. It also meant that it could be broken, which would make the people liable to its curses. In the Exodus story, we learn that the people broke it almost as soon as it had been made. They deserved judgment, therefore. But for His namesake, and for the sake of the unconditional promises He previously made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the possession of Canaan and the blessings of the nation through their offspring, the Messiah, the Lord showed mercy and grace to Israel. This really is the truth that is put on display in this episode of re- in the history of redemption. The Lord was merciful and gracious to Israel. Though they deserved His judgment because they broke His covenant, He was patient with them. He passed over their transgressions so that He might fulfill the promises He made to Abraham concerning the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, it should be clear to you that for God to relate to man at all after Adam's fall into sin requires mercy and grace from God. Have you ever thought of this? For God to relate to man at all after Adam's fall into sin requires mercy and grace from God. If He is to relate to us in any way, He must be patient with us. And indeed, God has determined to be patient with His people, merciful, gracious, and kind. This brings us to the second heading of the sermon, which is this, The name of the Lord further revealed. Do not forget the request that Moses made when he previously interceded for Israel, as recorded in chapter 33 of Exodus. In verse 13 of that chapter, we hear Moses speak to the Lord, saying, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. It's a marvelous request. God, would you do this for me? Would you reveal yourself further to me? Would you show me your ways? Show me your ways so that I might know you, so that I might live in such a way so as to bring glory to your name. A wonderful request from Moses. And indeed, the Lord did at that time show Moses his glory and reveal his name and ways to him. And what did the Lord reveal concerning His ways? There in Exodus 33, verse 19, the Lord proclaimed His name, Yahweh, saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In this statement, the Lord revealed something to Moses concerning His ways. He is a gracious and merciful God, and He has the right to show mercy and grace to whomever He wills. This the Apostle Paul picked up and interprets for us in that passage that was read in Romans chapter 9, where he says in verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And a little later he says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul understood this to be true about Yahweh. This is is Yahweh. These are his ways. He is a merciful and gracious God, but He has the sovereign right as God Most High to show mercy and grace to whomever He wills. We are sinners, brothers and sisters. By nature, we are children of wrath. We are rebels. He owes us nothing. But He is gracious. He is merciful and kind. And He will show mercy to whomever He will show mercy and grace to whomever He will show grace. To deny this truth is to deny 
a revealed truth concerning Yahweh. If you wish to know Yahweh, you must know this about Him. This is what He revealed concerning Himself to Moses. And this is what Paul restates about Him in Romans chapter 9. He is the one who shows mercy to whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will notice that here in Exodus 34, the Lord further revealed His name to Moses as He reinstitutes the covenant. In 34.6 we read, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Notice that the Lord cited five attributes that characterize him. He pronounced his name twice, Yahweh, Yahweh, and then he lists five attributes that characterize him. First, he is merciful. This Hebrew word can also be translated as compassionate. This is our God. He is Yahweh, the Lord, and he is merciful. He is compassionate. Secondly, he is gracious, meaning that he does things for people that they do not deserve. We know this to be true of our Lord. He is gracious. Thirdly, He is also slow to anger or patient with those who sin against Him. The Lord is slow to anger. He is patient. He is long-suffering. Have you not found this to be true about our Lord? He has revealed it here, but we have experienced it also. Indeed, we have experienced it as a human race from Adam's day onward. He is patient, slow to anger. Fourthly, He is abounding in steadfast love. This means that God is overflowing with covenant loyalty. That really is the meaning of the phrase here. God is is loyal to His covenants. He He is faithful to keep His promises. He is abounding or overflowing in steadfast love. Fifthly, He is abounding in faithfulness. This means that God is true. He is true. He keeps His word. These unchanging perfections of God are what produce His gracious actions toward us as described in verse 7. I want you to see that two things are revealed here. After Yahweh pronounces His name to Moses twice, Yahweh, Yahweh, He mentions five attributes of His This is who I am. This is my essence. This is my nature. This is my character. But in verse 7, he talks about what he does. And what he does is an outflow of who he is. Make the connection between these, these two things. What he does for us is an outflow of who he is. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The phrase... Keeping steadfast love could be translated keeping covenant loyalty or faithfulness. That is the meaning. And the phrase for thousands could actually be translated to the thousandth generation. He keeps his promises and his covenant forever and ever is the meaning. But then we have this word of clarification. 
The Lord will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I've already explained what this text does not mean, or this phrase does not mean in previous sermons. This is not teaching some strange doctrine of generational curses, but rather the idea is this, that sometimes the children suffer for the sins of the fathers, and in fact what often happens is the children repeat the sins of the fathers, and the Lord will not clear the guilty. He will in fact judge sin. And here is the truth that so many professing Christians today do not want to confess about Yahweh. Is He merciful and gracious? Yes, amen, He is. Is He he a God who is compassionate? Is He a God who is faithful? Yes, He is all of these wonderful truths. Thanks be to God for His mercy and grace, but He will judge. He is a God who is just also. He will not pardon the guilty, but will visit their sin upon Him. He does so in this life. He will do so surely at the end of time when Christ returns, not to bring salvation, but to judge Our Lord is a just God, and we must not forget this. Let us put all of this together concerning what the Lord revealed Himself uh, to Moses about. Here the Lord further revealed His name to Moses. This means that He further revealed His character or His attributes. Yahweh is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who He is. These are His attributes. And what are His ways? Remember Moses' request to the Lord. Show me your ways. Show me who you are. Tell me your name. Let me understand what you are like. But also reveal to me your ways. Your ways amongst the children of men. Well, the ways of the Lord are also revealed here in this passage. He is keeping covenant faithfulness to the thousandth generation. He is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But do not forget about His justice, brothers and sisters. He will by no means clear the guilty of the sins that are committed in every generation. I think it is important to recognize that this revelation of the divine name and of the attributes of God, along with the revelation of the ways of the Lord, agree perfectly with what God has done to bring about our redemption in Christ Jesus. Stated differently, what the Lord has done to bring about our redemption in Christ Jesus in history perfectly agrees with His character. With His character. He did not judge Adam fully and finally when he broke the covenant of works that God had made with him, but showed mercy even to Adam and to all of his descendants. He gave Adam a promise concerning salvation through the covenant of grace. That promise was entrusted to Abraham and later to Israel. But in order to bring the Christ into the world through Israel in fulfillment to the promises previously made, it was necessary for the Lord to be merciful. He would have to be patient with sinners. He would have to pass over their sin for a time. He would have to withhold His wrath lest the children of Adam and Abraham be consumed by Him. Indeed, this is what the Lord has done. He has, to use the language of Paul in Romans 9, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called 
not for, from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In fact, Paul has this text that we are here considering today in mind. Exodus 33 and 34, the revelation of the divine name, the revelation of the words of the Lord. He has all of this in mind as he writes to the Romans. <laughs> and he is urging them to consider, to contemplate the mercy and grace of God. Consider how patient he has been with rebel sinners. Throughout the history of the world, he has been patient with rebel sinners. He has withheld his wrath so that he might bring about our salvation in Jesus the Christ. That is what the Lord revealed to Moses up on Sinai. Here is who I am, Moses. Here is what my name, Yahweh, means. And here are my ways. Here is how I am working amongst the children of men. To deny this truth about God is to deny Yahweh, His character and His ways. We cannot ignore these truths, brothers and sisters. Here in Exodus 34, the Lord further reveals Himself to Moses and through Him to Israel and to the world, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And what did Moses do, brothers and sisters? What was his response to this revelation? Did he complain against the Lord? Did he shake his fist against God and claim that it was not fair that he show mercy to some and not to others? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That is what Moses did. May our response be the same as His. When we consider the Lord's mercy and His sovereign right to show mercy to whomever He wills, may we bow our heads towards the earth and worship. Our thoughts would have to be so very perverted for us to hear of God's mercy and grace and for us to shake our fist at Him and to say, How dare you not show saving grace to all? If that is your response to this revelation of the divine name, you do not understand your sin, nor the sins of humanity and what they deserve from the Lord. Let this be clear to you. We ought to bow before the Lord and worship when we hear that God is going to show mercy and grace to sinners at all. How sad it is to see that many who claim to be followers of Christ and worshipers of Yahweh in our day and age do the opposite when they hear of the Lord's sovereign right to show mercy to whomever He wills. How sad it is to see. May it not be so of us, brothers and sisters, but we, may we worship Yahweh according to how He has revealed Himself to us in history, in Christ, and in the Holy Scriptures. May we bow before Him and worship Him. So then, in our passage we see that the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai was reinstated, after the Israelites had broken it, we have also considered further revelation of the divine name given to Moses. Thirdly, let us consider that Moses' leadership over Israel was in this episode firmly reestablished. Here's what I mean by this. Moses was again on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What happened the last time he was away? Do you remember? The people dismissed Moses as their leader and sought to control Aaron instead, saying, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. That is what happened. 
as it pertains to the leadership of Moses the last time that he was away. And the question is this, what will happen when Moses comes down the mountain this second time with new tablets? Will the people have rebelled? Will they be engaged in idolatry once more? Instead, we see that when Moses returns, the people are humble. They've maintained their reverence for the Lord in his absence, and they even possessed a greater respect for the man Moses. In verse 29 and following, we learn that the Lord did something for Moses to assist with this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. This radiance that was set upon Moses by the Lord functioned as a sign that he had indeed communed with the Lord. This was a sign that Moses was indeed the servant of the Lord and was sent by him to function as the mediator of the old covenant. And so in this way, the leadership of Moses was reestablished. But do not miss this very significant point. The radiant glory that was placed upon Moses did quickly fade. It faded. And this was to signify that though Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, he was not the Messiah. The Lord of glory who came in the flesh, that was the Messiah. Moses was not the Messiah. And though the old covenant which he mediated was good so far as it fulfilled the purposes that God had for it, it was not meant to be permanent, but would in the fullness of time fade away in the face of Christ and the new covenant ratified in His blood. Do you see the significance of this? Moses, his, his skin was radiant, and that was a sign that he was communing with God and was God's representative Indeed, the leadership of Moses was more firmly reestablished because of this gift from God to him, of course. But the glory faded, and this signifies the fading glory of the old covenant in the passing of time and with the coming of the new. I wonder if you remember that episode recorded for us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wherein Jesus went up onto the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And who else appeared there on the mountain with Jesus and these disciples of his, except Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, and the great prophet Elijah, a prophet who ministered under the Old Covenant. At this moment, God was signifying that he had set his favor upon Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant, and that Moses and Elijah were not against him, but were happy to see his day. They were happy to give way to him and to fade into the background. Indeed, they would have agreed with John the Baptist, who, as the greatest of the old covenant prophets, spoke in this way concerning Jesus, saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. John, the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, understood that this was right. He was meant to prepare the way for the Messiah, as all the Old Covenant prophets were, but he was to fade into the background when the Messiah arrived. Indeed, this is what has happened. Uh, These disciples, Peter, James, and John, were given 
a little taste of the glory of the Messiah there as they went up onto the mountain with him. Jesus was transfigured before them, but that glory did fade away. Jesus, do not forget, has ascended after his resurrection, not some earthly mountain, but where? Into heaven. And he ascended in his fullness of glory. And there he sat down, and from there he will return. So Moses was blessed to have this radiant glory set upon him for a short time, but that glory faded. Jesus showed His glory to His disciples as the mediator of the new covenant up on that mountain to to testify to them of of His role in the outworking of our redemption. He is the mediator of the new covenant. But after accomplishing His work, after rising from the dead, He ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory where He remains to this present day and from where He will return. We must connect all of these things in our minds, brothers and sisters, as we consider our text for today. The radiant glory that fell upon Moses signified his favor and close communion with the Lord, but it faded. It faded, not because of something that Moses had done, but because he and the covenant of which he served as a mediator was was designed to fade. The old covenant was glorious, but it was designed to give way to the far surpassing and never fading glory of the new with Christ as mediator. If you wish to have a text in support of this idea, you may go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 on your own time. There Paul the Apostle speaks of this very thing. He speaks of the fading glory of Moses. And from that account, he reasons in the same way that I have reasoned before you this morning, uh, that though Moses and the Old Covenant have faded away, Christ and the New Covenant and the glory therein will never, ever fade There is a permanence to the glory of Christ. Let me now conclude with three brief suggestions for contemplation. One, brothers and sisters, let us contemplate God, His names, and His ways, as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Scriptures. Let us never cease to contemplate God, His names, and His ways as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Scriptures. Remember the words of Christ in His high priestly prayer. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you wish to know God and Christ truly and to have eternal life in Him, then you must submit to God's Word. You must receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Many people claim to know God and Christ and to love them, but they will not surrender to divine revelation. Instead, they rebel against it. Instead, they make a God and Savior for themselves after their image and according to their desires, according to their reason. If we wish to know God and to contemplate Him truly, then we must surrender to His Word. He is the Lord. And as He has said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Two, 
Let us contemplate the mercy and patience of God. And here, I am not referring to the mercy He has shown to us in Christ Jesus to save save us from our sins. Indeed, that is worthy of contemplation too, and it is the greater and more glorious thing. But here I am referring to the mercy that He has shown to all men, living in all times and in all places. It is incredible to consider the patience of the Lord. He has for millennia restrained the outpouring of His wrath. He even gives good gifts to men. He gives good gifts even to those who hate Him. And I wonder, have you ever looked out upon the city and thought to yourself, our God is so very patient with sinners. Indeed, He is merciful. He does not immediately give men what they deserve. He is patient, and this is to leave room for the full accomplishment and application of salvation to all of His elect. We must give Him praise for His mercy. Yes, praise Him for our salvation in Christ Jesus, but God, be praised for our, the mercy that You have shown too. Indeed, He has been merciful to us. Before we came to faith in Christ Jesus, was the Lord not patient with us as we lived a life of sin and rebellion against Him? God's mercy is truly great. Three, let us contemplate and give thanks to God for the way of salvation He has provided for the world, that is to say, for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. As we continue in our study of Exodus, we must not lose sight of the fact that he entered into a covenant with Israel, was patient with them for many hundreds of years despite their constant rebellion, and was faithful to preserve them so that he might bring the Messiah into the world through them, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Praise be to Yahweh for His abundant mercy and grace. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks to You. We thank You for who You are, O God. You are a God full of perfections, beyond even our ability to fully comprehend. In you there is no darkness whatsoever. You always do what is right. And we give you praise, for you are worthy. We praise you especially that you have been merciful, gracious, and kind to us. Certainly our presence here today, on this Lord's Day, assembled together with your people, O Lord, and even being invited to your table is a testimony to your mercy and grace. You have been patient with us. You have even drawn us to faith in Jesus the Redeemer. God, be exalted in us. May we live a life of gratitude before you always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.